This podcast is for information purposes only, and it does not constitute medical advice. If you have any health or medical concerns, please contact your doctor or family physician. Hello and welcome to episode two of Flexibility Focus, the podcast that dives deep into all things flexibility and human movement. I'm your host, Dan Van Zandt. If you've already listened to episode one, welcome back and thank you for sticking with the show. If this is your first time tuning in, I'd like to wish you a warm welcome to the Flexibility Focus family. Be sure to check out episode one at some point because it will give you um, a very good overview of what flexibility is how it fits in with biomechanics and the study of human movement, what the different types of flexibility and stretching are, and what the actual differences are between flexibility and mobility based on what the science says. Uh, I want to say thank you to everyone who wrote in and gave me feedback about the last episode. The response has been unbelievably positive, and it far exceeded any expectations I had for the show. So far, I've received hundreds of messages and literally 99% of them have said nothing but good things. And I've been blown away by the sheer number of people saying how much episode one cleared up the confusion and frustration they'd been feeling because of all the conflicting messages being put out in the health and fitness industry. There's such a huge gap between the industry and the science. And I hope to close that gap a little more with each new podcast episode or social media post that I put out. I also hope other researchers are paying attention too because unfortunately there's also a lot of bad science out there, whether we're talking about clinical studies being designed in a way that doesn't accurately simulate what happens in effective flexibility training or whether we're talking about people who don't fully understand the subject of flexibility and so they make erroneous conclusions about flexibility or flexibility training based on those flawed studies. And so My main goal is to make the good science more available to you and to make it easier to understand so you have one less obstacle in your way when you're trying to get healthier or when you're trying to get other people healthier. And if you're a researcher, I want to help you better understand the practicalities of flexibility training so that you can implement study designs that will generate more accurate and meaningful conclusions. I also want to say thank you to the 1% of people who wrote in with something more critical to say about the show. And I mean that because, like I said before, all feedback is welcome, both good and bad. Now, most of that 1% of people gave me very constructive advice. But there were a few who didn't agree with my explanation of flexibility and mobility. And that's fine because, honestly, I expected it. In fact, I thought I was going to get a lot more messages that like that than I actually did. Interestingly, around 70 people wrote in to say that they won't be using the flawed model of mobility any longer, or the limited model of mobility, which I think is probably a more accurate name for it. And it's the one which incorrectly states that mobility is active and flexibility is passive range of motion. And personally, I think that's a good thing, because it means we're one small step closer to scientific accuracy in the industry. However, and this made me laugh, but I noticed that since episode one went out, there's been a substantial rise in the number of social media posts pushing the limited model of mobility. Now, I don't know, maybe it's just a coincidence, but I've also had a few instances of direct hostility in response to my message. And 
in every single case, those people say I'm just arguing about semantics, as well as calling me some rather colourful names, which doesn't bother me because it's more funny than it is hurtful. It's also a bit sad, really, that they have to resort to name-calling because they're unable to formulate an intelligent response. Now, invariably, whenever I challenge the validity and accuracy of the limited mobility model, the typical response that I get from people is that I'm just arguing about semantics. And when someone says that, when they say that you're just arguing about semantics, what they're actually saying is that the meaning of words isn't relevant, that the meaning of words doesn't matter. But they're wrong because semantics and the meaning of words is how human beings communicate with each other at the most fundamental level. So of course it's important. And the thing that I find most amusing about people who say I'm just arguing about semantics is that they don't realise their own hypocrisy. Because when you promote the limited model of mobility where you make statements about certain words meaning certain things, i.e. the word mobility means active range of motion, and flexibility means passive range of motion, then you're basing your argument on semantics. And when I challenge your limited model of mobility, I'm challenging your semantics-based argument precisely because you're using semantics which are not congruent with what most of the scientific literature says. And remember, if you want to claim to be science or evidence-based, then the literature is where you need to get your terminology and definitions from. So, when you try to dismiss my challenge by saying I'm just arguing about semantics, it presents a couple of issues. Number one, you're just stating the obvious, so good job there. And number two, it makes you a hypocrite because your own argument relies upon semantics also. And it also undermines your own position because if you can dismiss my challenge because semantics don't matter, then I can just as easily dismiss your argument in the same way. But listen, the incorrect terminology is only half of the issue with the limited model of mobility. The other half of the issue is that it paints only half a picture of what's going on in a joint during human movement. Remember, in episode one, I said that there are four types of range of motion, depending on whether the joint is moving or still, and depending on whether the muscles are contracting or relaxing. So the limited model of mobility only categorizes range of motion into two types, active and passive. So it tells you if the muscles are contracting or relaxing, respectively. But it doesn't tell you anything about if the joint is moving or still, i.e. dynamic or active. And that presents us with a massive issue, because if you don't specify whether the joint is moving or still, then you cannot account for velocity, which is a huge factor when determining the forces that affect movement and injury. And also because flexibility, or range of motion, is speed-specific, and we can only prescribe speed-specific exercises if we specify that the joint is moving, which the limited model of mobility does not do, hence why it's called the limited model of mobility. Now, the biomechanical model of flexibility that I present in this podcast and on social media, which I've you know, pushed for years, it's a much stronger model for two primary reasons. Number one, it matches ex exactly what the overwhelming majority of the scientific literature says. So it uses appropriate semantics. And number two, it presents a full and clear picture of the physics of joint motion. So in my opinion, there's a clear winner in this argument. But look, I get it. The limited model of mobility was created with good intentions. And the people who promote it are trying to simplify the language in an, in an industry littered with excessive and pointless terminology 
initialisms and acronyms, but the limited model of mobility does more harm than good. First, it widens the gap between what science says and what the industry says. So we have a bigger disconnect between the research and the practical applications. Second, human beings have a, have a tremendous propensity for tribalism. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the industry. People are latching on to this incorrect idea that flexibility is passive range of motion only. And therefore, flexibility training is just passive training. So they go around telling people who are doing flexibility training, oh, you're training flexibility, so what you're doing must be passive and therefore it's useless. First of all, passive range of motion and passive types of stretching are not completely useless. And second of all, this type of behavior where you're going around parroting popular catchphrases and telling people their training is useless means that you're more loyal to a particular type of groupthink than you are to your own ability to think rationally. It's absolute garbage and it's also very annoying, so stop doing that. Third, systems of mobility training typically take existing techniques or principles which already have names that are easy enough to remember and which is sufficiently descriptive and then they go and apply their own pointless names to them. So we end up with even more unnecessary terminology, initialisms and acronyms which do nothing but contribute to the mass confusion that already exists. And in my opinion, the only real reason that I can think of as to why someone would want to rebrand existing exercises and techniques is purely for marketing purposes. And that's all before we even talk about how the limited model of mobility doesn't even account for the dynamic or static nature of motion, which I've already mentioned. But I think supporters of this limited model are slowly starting to realize this. And what we're seeing now is they're beginning to add in exercises that, that develop range of motion at speed, aka dynamic flexibility. But they give it silly names like end range velocity training or some nonsense. It's a bit like end range strength training. Yes, we know you're developing strength at the limit of your range of motion, but if you're trying to develop range of motion, you're still training flexibility. Anyway, my point is that if you want to challenge what I'm saying when I criticize the limited model of mobility as being the oversimplified reductionism that it is, then do so with fact and logic. And don't just trot out the tired and flawed semantics reply. By the way, just to reiterate a point I made last episode, and which I've made many times across social media, because some people think I'm still trying to infringe on their right to free speech. Look, I'm not trying to convert anyone to my way of thinking. I'm not some kind of messiah of flexibility or protector of the scientific terminology. Believe it or not, I didn't create this terminology. It's just what the science says. I'm just a science guy giving you my take on what science says, but understand that my take on the science is based on more than 30 years of flexibility training and on more than 20 years of analysing and teaching the flexibility and biomechanics literature. I think I can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that I've probably read and reviewed more flexibility-specific research than almost anyone else. I've read, reread, and reread again every major article on all the different types of stretching and I own and have read many times every single book on the subject, and I consistently read between 30 and 50 research articles per week. And I'm not just skimming the abstracts like a lot of people do. I read every article in full, start to finish, including reviewing the full list of references. This is literally what I do full time, so I'd like to think I kind of know what I'm talking about here. My job is to give you that information so you can take it into consideration 
when making decisions and forming your own opinions. Now, it's completely up to you what language you want to use or what model of human movement you want to promote. And while I will always challenge language or models that I don't agree with, I will always respect your right to use your preferred terminology, but don't you dare accuse me ever of trying to infringe on anyone's freedom of speech. Anyway, moving on, rant over. Uh, I put out a vote on my Instagram asking whether you wanted the next few episodes to focus on the interactions between the motor abilities, so looking at flexibility strength, flexibility endurance, and so on, or whether you wanted me to focus on the components of flexibility like extensibility, stiffness, etc., The vote was very close, with 52% of people voting in favour of the components of flexibility. Uh, I will examine the motor ability interactions in later episodes, but these next few instalments will focus on the components of flexibility. If you want to have a say in shaping future episodes, get on Instagram, find me at at flexibility.research, follow me and take part in votes when I put them up. In this episode, I'm going to focus on extensibility, because... There's still many people in the health and fitness profession who think flexibility is how far your muscles can stretch, including people with doctorate level qualifications. So they think flexibility is just how far your muscles can stretch, which isn't true. Remember, flexibility is the motor ability that determines the capacity of your joints to move. It's different to the stretching of tissues, which forms a small part or a component of that motor ability. And in biological physics and I look at everything in the human body through the lens of biological physics or biophysics because biology must obey the laws of physics. And in biophysics, the lengthening or stretching of materials has a specific name, and that name is extensibility. Extensibility is the ability of a material to lengthen, extend, or stretch to a predetermined endpoint. And in flexibility and in human physiology as a whole, the material that we examine when we consider the property of extensibility as the soft tissues, such as muscle fibers and connective tissues. And extensibility is a biomechanical property of the physiological dimension of muscle length or how long a muscle is. But, and this is a very important point to remember, there are two ways to think about muscle length. The first is how far the muscle can stretch, which is what we're talking about when we discuss extensibility. And the second is how much physical muscle there is from end to end. And it's important to bear this distinction in mind when you're listening to this episode or when you're reading research material. So to make things easier for you, when I'm talking about extensibility, which will be in part one of the episode, I'm referring to lengthening the muscle by stretching it and then returning it to its natural resting length without adding any new muscle. And when I'm talking about increasing muscle length, I'm talking about increasing the physical length of the muscle by growing new muscle cells longitudinally. So you end up with more muscle than you started out with. All right. In part two of the episode, I'll review an article that compared static stretching, normal foam rolling and vibration foam rolling and the effect that each of those had on flexibility, proprioception, strength and balance. In part three, the book review, I'll give you my opinion on some books you might find useful In part four, I'll mention some people who I think you should be following on social media. I'm also delighted to bring you an interview that I did with Sid Paulson, an awesome gymnastics and conditioning coach who I mentioned in the spotlight segment of the last episode. And lastly, in part five of the the show, I'll answer questions from the audience. 
Now, before I start part one, I want to quickly make an important announcement. Something which is very apparent from my conversations with many of you is that you're not actually all that bothered about the deeper level science that underpins flexibility training. Most of you just want straightforward advice telling you what you need to do, when, how often, how to progress, regress, and so on. When I put a vote out on my Instagram asking who would be interested in a book like that, 99% of you voted yes. Uh, In fact, and I'm not even kidding here, only one person voted no, so there's clearly a huge demand for a book like that. So for the time being, I've suspended writing my planned academic textbook on flexibility, and I'm instead focusing all my efforts on creating a user-friendly manual on the basics of flexibility training. Everything in it will still be fully backed by science, but the tone will be much easier to read than what you find in a typical science textbook. Now, the plan is to release it as an ebook and make it available on Amazon. I'm looking into the possibility of print on demand, so you'll be able to have a real life copy if you want it, but I'll release more definite details closer to when it's finished. I'm aiming to get it out in around six weeks, but please understand this is a rough target only. I'm not releasing it until I'm satisfied it gives you everything you need to know about the practicalities of getting more flexible. So while I'm aiming to get it out in six weeks, know that it might be a little later. It might even be a little earlier. Who knows? But I will keep you updated on its progress. Um, Now, because all my energy and attention will be going into the book, it means I don't know when the next episode of the podcast is coming out. If I'm happy that I'm still on track to release the book in a reasonable amount of time, then I'll try to get another another episode out in about two weeks. And I'm probably going to make it a fortnightly thing going forward. But again, please understand I may delay the podcast while I'm working on the book. Also, as I said on Instagram, I'm not taking on new clients until after this book is done. All right, that's enough for the introduction. Let's get on with part one. Hi, and welcome to part one. As I explained in the introduction, the biomotor ability, which we call flexibility, is made up of different smaller parts or components. A simple way to think of it is like a recipe. The components are the ingredients and flexibility is the finished dish. And something that I hope is becoming clear is that there are levels to movement and flexibility. In fact, there are levels to everything from the human body to the entire physical universe. So let's start with the human body. And the primary function of the human body is movement. And movement is broken down into further levels called the components of movement, which are the motor abilities I talked about in episode one. And those abilities are strength, endurance, flexibility, speed, agility, and coordination. And coordination is also known as motor control. And when we look at flexibility, it too can be broken down into further levels called the different types of flexibility, which are dynamic active, dynamic passive, static active, and static passive flexibility. And the types of flexibility can each be broken down into further levels yet again, called the components of flexibility, which are things like extensibility, elasticity, stiffness, and so on. So you see there are levels to this stuff and there are levels to all of biology and flexibility is just a small part of your biology. So to explain this concept a little deeper from the perspective of biological physics, if we look at a person, 
we see their whole body at the macroscopic level. But we know the body can be broken down into further levels, and in descending order of size from largest to smallest, those levels are the whole body or the organism, then it's the systems, then it's the organs, then it's tissues, then cells, then molecules, then atoms, and then photons, neutrons, and electrons, and so on through the subatomic particles. And flexibility is no exception to this layering structure. And the components of flexibility, which I'm going to discuss in this episode, and the next several episodes, in fact, are essentially the building blocks of flexibility. So they lay the foundation for the capacity of your joints to change position and for your ability to move and to get into different positions so you can exert force where you need to. And remember, force is the driver of all movement and injury in the human body, which is why I place such a huge significance on force and the kinetics of motion. If you're not familiar with that term kinetics, it's simply the branch of biomechanics which studies the forces that cause motion, and it's different from kinematics, which is the branch of biomechanics which describes motion such as how far, how fast, and in what direction a body travels. And a good way to think about the difference between kinetics and kinematics is it's like looking at a car. Kinetics is when you lift up the hood or the bonnet, if you live in the UK, and you can look at the forces that are pushing the car forwards and backwards. And kinematics is when you look at the car driving down the street. And so you can describe how fast and in which direction it's going. Okay, so... The components of flexibility can be divided into two main categories, and those categories are the neural components and the mechanical components. The neural components are concerned with how the central and peripheral nervous systems affect and are affected by flexibility training. And the mechanical components look at how the physical structures of the body respond when force is applied to them during flexibility training. Remember that even a basic passive static stretch creates a tensile force or a pulling force when the muscles are stretched, which generates strain or deformation in the tissues. Uh, now, something which I'm going to keep repeating because it's so very important uh, for you to remember is that nothing in the body happens in complete isolation. So while I say the components are divided into neural and mechanical types, uh, that's just to assist you in understanding of, or in, assist your understanding of these concepts that I'll be talking about, uh, and both the neural and mechanical mechanical components have a part to play in every movement or exercise, because the the human body is a remarkably complex system of systems, and the divisions and categories that we separate these various systems into are completely artificial. And they're designed to assist our learning of the whole organism. But in reality, nothing in the body exists or functions entirely on its own. And this is why forces in your left foot might have an effect on your right shoulder, for example. So even though we divide the components of flexibility into neural and mechanical types, when you stretch, regardless if it's a moving stretch or a static stretch, and Regardless if you're contracting the muscles or relaxing the muscles, there will always be both a neural response and a mechanical response to the stretch. To put it simply, the neural and mechanical components are always involved to some degree at the same time when you stretch. Now, I'm going to be focusing on the mechanical components before the neural components because 
even though the mechanical components are not immediately easy to understand, when you compare them to the structure and function of the nervous system, which is one of the most complex entities in the entire universe, then understanding the mechanical components is a heck of a lot easier. Now, I don't want to put you off learning about flexibility by all this talk of the complexities of biology, but I also think it's fair that you're given enough warning that the intrinsic processes of the body and movement are not straightforward and can take a little time to come to terms with. Now, aside from being divided into neural and mechanical categories, the components of flexibility are also grouped according to the dimension that they represent, because all aspects of human movement are multidimensional, including flexibility. So uh, a, a dimension is an aspect of movement, and its various attributes are called properties. So let me give you an example. Joint angle is a dimension of flexibility, and the degrees of the arc is a property of that dimension. And there are other dimensions that we need to consider if we're going to fully appreciate the motor ability that we call flexibility. And this is why I say that research studies which look at only joint angle provide us with only a one-dimensional representation of flexibility. And as I've already said, muscle length is one dimension of flexibility. There are three other dimensions concerning muscle, and these include tension, cross-sectional area, and time. And I'll explain each of those um, in a bit more detail. So tension is the force transmitted along the muscle's longitudinal axis. Cross-sectional area is if you were to slice the muscle perpendicular to its longitudinal axis or cut across it at a right angle to its length, it's essentially the amount of muscle you would see. So to use a very simplistic model, imagine a muscle is like a cylinder. If we were to cut the cylinder in half across its diameter, when you look down at the cylinder and you see a circle, so you're looking at its circumference and diameter, the circle that you're looking at is the cross-sectional area. And time is, well, I'm assuming you all know what time is, but in case you don't know what time is, time very simply is a scalar quantity that measures the never-ending progress of existence. So to summarize, the muscular dimensions of flexibility are length, tension, cross-sectional area, and time. And each of these dimensions give us various biomechanical properties that we can use to get a much better idea of what's going on during a stretch. So the dimension of length gives us the property of extensibility, which I've already said is how far the existing muscle or the existing amount of muscle can stretch without increasing the amount of physical muscle. This goes hand in hand with elasticity, which is the property that describes a material's ability to return to its original shape once the stretching force has been removed. The dimension of tension gives us the biomechanical properties of stiffness, compliance, energy, and hysteresis. And I'll very briefly explain what each of those is. Stiffness is the change in tension per unit change in length. Compliance is the change in length per unit change in tension. Energy is the area under the length tension curve. And hysteresis is the energy lost when the stretching force is removed. And again, please don't worry if none of these make much sense right now. I'm going to explain them all in much more detail in future episodes. 
Okay, the dimension of cross-sectional area gives us the biomechanical property of stress, which is the amount of tension per unit of cross-sectional area, which essentially allows us to calculate how much force the muscle fibers can exert over, say, every square centimeter. And lastly, the dimension of time gives us the biomechanical properties of viscoelastic stress relaxation, which is the percentage difference between peak and final torque. And you'll feel that as the decrease in resistance that happens when you hold a stretch and it gets easier. And there's also the property of creep, uh, sometimes called cold flow, which is a progressive increase in length as the tissue is held under a constant load. And again, this isn't necessarily an increase in the amount of tissue from end to end, but rather it's more like extensibility without the complementary property of elasticity, meaning the tissues don't return to the normal or to their original length once the stretching force is removed. So it's like putting the tissues in a permanently stretched state, which may cause issues like pain and weakness. And it's one of the prevailing theories as to how or why our bodies develop harmful adaptations to unnatural postures, like sitting at a desk all day where we develop that stooped rounded shoulder posture. Now, it's important to remember that muscle is a deformable material, which means that its extensibility or how much it, it can stretch depends upon how much tensile force or pulling force is applied to the fibers. And remember that tensile force and passive tension are not the same thing. Tensile force is the force that is pulling the muscle in the direction of elongation or how much force is stretching the muscle. And passive tension is the passive resistance of the muscle to it being stretched. So tensile force is the stretching force and passive tension is the resisting force. And also remember that these two values are equal in magnitude and direction. So say, for example, you exert a force of 10 newtons to stretch your wrist flexors. Your wrist flexors will exert passive tension or a resistance force of 10 newtons in response. And, and speaking of Newton, this is because of Newton's third law of motion, the law of action-reaction, which states that the magnitude of force on each body is equal in magnitude to the force on the other body, and the direction of force on each body is opposite to the direction of the force on the other body. Now, we use passive length tension curves to illustrate this relationship between length and tension, which allows us to plot the amount of passive tension for each increase in length. And I've already explained that range of motion is just one way to measure flexibility, albeit it is the easiest and therefore the most common way to measure flexibility. But like I said, that's a very one-dimensional way to approach flexibility. And a very important point to remember is that you can improve your flexibility without increasing your range of motion. And I know that probably sounds a bit counterintuitive, so let me explain. Flexibility is a joint's ability to change position, and range of motion is one way to measure that ability. But we can also measure that ability by how much less resistance to stretch that you feel over time. So if through training you decrease the amount of passive resistance to stretch, or you decrease how much tension you feel being exerted by the muscles at a certain range, You've made getting to that point in your range easier, and so you've improved your flexibility. For example, if we take two people 
and all other things being equal, if person A takes 20 minutes to get into a full side split or middle split without a warm-up, um, sorry, with a warm-up, so person A takes 20 minutes to get into a full split with a, with a warm-up, and if person B can drop instantly into a full split without a warm-up, so they can do it cold, we generally say that person B, who can do the splits instantly, has the better flexibility because their ability to change the position of their joints is instantly available to them. And we could even say it's more functional. Although I'll probably get people saying the splits isn't functional, but that's another argument. So by making your muscles less resistant to stretch, you've improved your joints capacity to move without necessarily increasing range. And again, this is where the issue about semantics comes in because the word increase and the word improve don't mean the same thing. Let's consider another example. If, say, when you first start stretching your hamstrings, you feel a very strong resistance to stretch, then your hamstrings are exerting a lot of passive tension. Over time and with training, you're able to increase the extensibility of your muscles by increasing compliance, which is achieved by decreasing passive resistance to stretch so that you can reach that same point in your range of motion without necessarily increasing the final joint angle. So getting into that position feels easier, quicker and more comfortable. So your flexibility has gotten, pre has gotten better i.e. it's improved. But again, for, uh, for practical training purposes, we still use joint angle as the primary measurement of flexibility. And so it's very unlikely that you're going to try to improve flexibility without increasing range of motion, unless you're participating in a clinical study which is looking exclusively at passive tension, which really doesn't happen often at all. And this is a point worth remembering when you're training and your joint angles are not increasing and you're getting frustrated, you're thinking that your flexibility isn't improving and that your training isn't working. If your joint angle isn't increasing, but over the course of a few workouts, you felt less resistance to stretch, then your flexibility is improving. Don't just get caught up on the joint angle because what usually happens is that as you're working on flexibility, your joint angle will increase for a while and then it stops increasing and it takes a bit of time to see another increase in joint angle. And if you ask anyone who's done flexibility training for any length of time, they will tell you that progress is not linear and that these plateaus are quite common. But what you probably don't realize is that while your joint angle might have plateaued, you're, you're steadily improving your muscle extensibility by decreasing your passive resistance to stretch over time. And improvements in muscle extensibility almost always immediately precede an increase in joint angle. So if you've been training and you haven't been able to increase your range of motion or you haven't been able to stretch further, but you feel like the stretch is becoming more comfortable and it's easier to get into, then get ready because you're going to see an improvement in joint angle very soon. Now, the increase in muscle extensibility, or how far the muscle can stretch, happens either because there's a decrease in passive resistance to stretch, so reaching that point in your range of motion is easier, or the muscle is able to stretch further. When we examine these changes on the length tension curve, also known as the torque angle curve, 
decreases in passive resistance are indicated by a decrease in the slope of the curve. So when stretching becomes easier, the slope on the curve becomes less steep. And when the distance that the muscle can stretch increases, we see a shift to the right of the entire curve. And the right shift of the curve indicates that um, that resistance has decreased and the joint angle has increased, which is what happens in those moments during training when you've been trying to stretch further for a while and then all of a sudden, pop, you're able to go a bit further. Um, now, if you're wondering what the heck a length tension curve looks like, you can just look one up on Google Images. And that is muscle extensibility in a nutshell. I won't talk about length tension curves and all the other biomechanical properties too much here because I don't want to overload you with too much information and I'll discuss them in greater detail in later episodes. But what I will talk about now is the several theories that have been proposed to explain the underlying mechanisms of flexibility training. So several theories have been proposed over the years and I'm going to discuss them now in the context of how they relate to muscle extensibility. So the first theory is viscoelastic deformation. And this theory states that increases in your ability to stretch further are caused by a lasting viscoelastic deformation in the muscles. But what do we mean by that term viscoelastic? Well, skeletal muscles are considered to be viscoelastic and the visco part of the word means that they behave viscously, which is like a thick and sticky consistency somewhere between a liquid and a solid. And this viscosity depends on the amount of tensile force or pulling force applied over time. And the elastic part of the word means exactly what it sounds like in that muscles exhibit elasticity by returning to their original length once the stretching force has been removed. So when you stretch, the immediate increase in flexibility you see um, is due to the viscosity of muscles whenever the stretch is intense enough or it's held for long enough or it's performed often enough. When you stretch the muscle and you hold that stretch for a while, like you would do in normal static passive stretching, you'll feel the muscle's resistance to the stretch ease off. And according to this theory, that decrease in stretch resistance that you feel is called viscoelastic stretch deformation. And in biomechanics, we calculate it as a percentage of the initial resistance. And if you hold a sufficiently intense stretch for long enough, we can evaluate the property that we call creep which, as I said earlier, it's a sort of permanent elongation of the tissues. Now, it's important to bear in mind that this theory is based almost entirely on animal studies, and we need to be very careful making conclusions about the human body based on non-animal, uh, sorry, non-human studies. And human studies have shown that viscoelastic deformation is not a plausible mechanism for lasting changes in muscle extensibility. It is also important to understand, however, that almost all human studies looking into this viscoelastic response of muscles during stretching, they utilised very short duration stretches, typically anywhere from 10 seconds to a minute, and much more research is needed before we can completely refute the viscoelastic deformation theory as a mechanism of increased extensibility in chronic and rigorous stretching. Um, another theory which has been quite popular in the past to explain muscle extensibility is the um, plastic deformation of connective tissues theory. If you're not fam uh, if you 
are at all familiar with human anatomy and you know that muscle and connective tissue are not the same thing, then you might be wondering how plastic deformation of connective tissues can increase muscle extensibility. Well, connective tissue is essentially the fascia, F-A-S-C-I-A, fascia, which encases every part of the muscle, including the endomysium, perimysium, and epimysium. And the idea behind this theory is that muscles are already extensible enough, or they can stretch enough as they are, to give you all the range of motion that you want, and that its restrictions in the connective tissue or fascia surrounding the muscles, which is the principal limiting factor. And the word plastic is really just a synonym synonym for permanent. So this theory also states that it's possible to permanently and safely elongate connective tissues. The theory states that there's a point along the length tension curve where tissues are stretched to their limit of elasticity, which is the the final point where the tissue can return to its original length, and that continuing to stretch them beyond this point into the plastic range permanently elongates them. And that area of the length tension curve, the plastic range, lies between the end of the elastic range or the elastic limit and the start of the failure range, which is the point at which sprains and ruptures begin. And continuing to stretch tissues through the failure range results in a progressively worse rupture of the tissue until we reach total tissue failure or a complete rupture, which is the full separation of the connecting elements of the tissue. So you basically tear the damn thing in half. And once again, evidence for this theory is based almost entirely on animal studies. But what those studies didn't do is they didn't actually advocate for the theory of plastic deformation. Like so many people mistakenly believe, what those studies instead actually advocated for was viscoelastic deformation, which we've already talked about. And those studies stated that we may be able to use low-intensity long-duration stretching performed over a very long time frame, we're talking many months to years, to increase the so-called viscous flow within the connective tissue elements of the muscle tendon complex. Now, while length tension curve models that include a plastic deformation region can be applied to some biological tissue types, it's important to bear in mind that muscle demonstrates a different length tension curve to connective tissue. And a plastic deformation phase in muscle would show up as a decrease in the slope of the length length tension curve, which hasn't been adequately demonstrated in any studies to date. However, I also think it's important to point out that we know that a continuous tensile force, like the constant pulling force that occurs during stretching, stimulates fibroblasts to lay down new collagen in the direction of pull. And fibroblasts are the most common type of connective tissue cell in all the human body. And they're the cells which create collagen in the extracellular matrix, which is a sort of three-dimensional scaffolding which holds other cells together. So very simply, if you stretch hard enough and long enough, you cause a longitudinal increase in the growth of connective tissue. And so the question remains, if we can longitudinally increase the growth of connective tissue with stretching, What effect is that going to have on muscle fibers? Remember, nothing in the body happens in isolation. So I think this is going to be a very interesting area of of research in the future.
Um, another theory that attempts to explain increases in muscle extensibility is the sarcomerogenesis theory. Uh, sounds like a very complicated word, but it basically states that constant stretching of the muscle fibers causes more muscle cells to grow in the direction of the stretch. So we know, again, from animal studies that when muscles are held in a stretch position for a very long time, that there's an increase in the number of sarcomeres in series or in a line. And that sounds like the muscle got physically longer, right? Well, not exactly. And this is an important point that many supporters of the sarcomerogenesis theory fail to mention. Um, a lot of people have misinterpreted these animal studies to say that the overall physical length of the muscle had increased with stretching. But what those studies actually showed was that there was actually no overall change in muscle length because even though the number of sarcomere cells increased, the actual length of the individual cells themselves decreased, which offset any increase in overall physical length of the muscle. So the, the net result of change in the length of the muscle was negligible. And it's important to remember that the type of stretching people do in training looks absolutely nothing like the type of stretching used in those animal studies. So we can't really apply the results of those animal studies to human beings. However, we also need to acknowledge that no studies to date have probably, sorry, properly evaluated histological changes in human muscle following stretching. So we currently lack appropriate imaging technology to determine if stretching does or doesn't increase the number of sarcomeres and thus increase muscle length. Um, there have been some novel mechanistic mathematical models um, developed which illustrate chronic longitudinal muscle growth in, resp in response to static passive stretching and they do offer exciting insights for the future of research, but as it stands, while there's circumstantial evidence to suggest sarcomerogenesis may be a mechanism that accounts for increased muscle extensibility in humans, and such a process would certainly fill the gap where other theories fall short, for now, the jury is still out on its plausibility. But it's worth mentioning here that there's also some evidence to suggest that passive stretching can stimulate hypertrophic growth of muscle fibers on its own. And hypertrophy can occur in one of two ways. Number one, the diameter of the cell can increase. And number two, the length of the cell can increase. So while passive stretching may not increase the number of sarcomeres, it may actually increase the length of the overall muscle by increasing the length of the individual muscle cells by hypertrophic mechanisms. So I think the theories that support the idea that your muscles can be made longer through various stretching techniques cannot be completely dismissed just yet. Okay, uh, another theory that often appears in the literature is one called neuromuscular relaxation, which states that stretching sim uh, stimulates certain neuromuscular reflexes that cause the antagonistic muscles to essentially relax, allowing them to stretch further. But I don't think relax is possibly the right term here. Instead, inhibition or disfacilitation is probably a more accurate way of describing what's, go what's going on. Uh, now, the theory of neuromuscular relaxation is primarily neural 
and I will cover it in more detail in a late in a later episode, but I'm going to touch on it briefly here as it relates to muscle extensibility now. We know that prolonged static passive stretching can disfacilitate spindle reflexes. And spindles are specialized sensory receptors embedded in the muscle fibers, as well as inhibiting the synapses of afferent or sensory nerves. More specifically, the frequency of signals discharged by muscle spindles decreases with, with static passive stretching, and it increases with dynamic stretching, which is one of the reasons why I advocate doing dynamic stretching before your workouts. Understand, however, that the reduction in signal discharge frequency caused by static passive stretching is offset if you limit your, your stretches to 60 seconds per muscle group. And if you follow the static stretches with dynamic stretches and dynamic movements, which is something people still don't seem to acknowledge in the health and fitness industry, it's crazy. Uh, and so finally, on to the currently most popular theory of increased muscle extensibility, which is the sensory theory. Um, some people talk like the sensory theory is something new, but it's actually been around for about 30 years now, since the early 1990s. And this theory essentially states that increases in flexibility are caused by your ability to better tolerate the discomfort of stretching. It's a psychophysiological phenomenon. And really, it's more an indication of neuroplastic changes occurring in the brain rather than a model of structural changes occurring in the muscle. And this theory has gained favour with the anti-stretching crowd who seem to think that just because increases in flexibility might be caused by an increased psychological tolerance to the pain of stretching, that somehow this diminishes the effectiveness of stretching, which is silly. If anything, stretch, if, if stretching is a mechanism for creating lasting neuroplastic changes in the pain centres of the brain, then it's an extremely powerful tool for helping people suffering from chronic pain, and it only cements stretching's pl place in the rehabilitation process. And as someone myself who has suffered with chronic pain with my diagnosis, uh, diagnosis of CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome, I can tell you firsthand that static passive stretching helped me to manage my pain better than any talking therapy or pain science education did. Despite the popularity of the sensory theory as well, there are a few issues with it. First of all, it fails to explain the loss or recovery of flexibility in conditions where adaptive tissue changes have occurred. It also doesn't explain the mechanisms underlying chronic gains in flexibility caused by regular stretching, primarily because the effect of stretching programs lasting longer than eight weeks and very rigorous stretching have not yet been adequately investigated in the literature. So <clears throat> to summarize, muscle extensibility is the ability of your muscle fibers to stretch and it's the biomechanical property of the muscle length dimension of flexibility. And there's been several theories put forward to explain what causes increases in muscle extensibility, but so far, we really don't have a concrete idea of what is happening. And while the sensory theory is currently the most popular theory, it isn't perfect, and we cannot completely write off the other theories just yet. In my opinion, given the body of evidence, it's more likely that all of the theories proposed thus far are correct to some degree, and it's probably a little bit of everything happening. 
One thing that is clear, however, is that extensibility or how far your muscles can stretch is not a fixed value and it can increase or decrease accordingly with training or detraining respectively. But like anything, you have to make sure the exercises you're doing are specific enough, that they're intense enough, and that you do them often enough in order to have an effect. Hi, and welcome to part two, the research review. The article that I'm reviewing today is titled Comparison of Vibration Rolling, Non-Vibration Rolling, and Static Stretching as a Warm-Up Exercise on Flexibility, Joint Proprioception, Muscle Strength, and Balance in Young Adults. It was authored by Chia Lun Yi and colleagues at the Center for General Education, National Sun Yat-sen University, Kaohsiung, Taiwan, and it was published in April 2018 in the Journal of Sports Sciences. And the researchers took 30 uh, male college students aged in their early 20s and who were free from injury and disease, and they had them undergo three different trials, rolling with a vibrating foam roller, rolling with a standard non-vibrating foam roller, and static stretching. And the order of the trial, so the sequence in which each person received the three interventions was randomised. For each intervention, the participants performed a five-minute aerobic warm-up, and then they were assessed for knee flexibility, namely extensibility of the quadriceps and hamstrings. They were tested for knee joint proprioception, isokinetic quad and hamstring muscle strength, and they also performed the Y balance test. Uh, That's just the letter Y balance test. The protocol for each of the interventions was was the same. They did three sets of 30 seconds for the quads and hamstrings on both sides. So they they would do six minutes work in total for the vibrating foam roller, six minutes using the non-vibrating roller, and six, six minutes doing static stretches. The three protocols were performed on different days with 48 hours rest between each session. And the participants were advised to avoid strenuous exercise for at least 24 hours before the next intervention. The post-test measures were recorded immediately after each intervention. And they were the same measures that were tested at the start of each intervention. And the results showed that vibration rolling improved muscle performance considerably. Um, Vibration rolling produced significant increases in both knee flexion and knee extension flexibility as well as muscle strength and dynamic balance. However, it didn't improve nor make worse knee joint proprioception. In comparison, regular foam rolling, um, with, which was done with the non-vibrating roller, actually had a negative effect on knee joint proprioception. And while vibration rolling and the static stretching produced pretty much the same gains in flexibility, vibration rolling could be considered superior as a warm-up because it produced better results for both muscle strength and dynamic balance which static stretching didn't do now there are a few limitations with the study namely there was no control group the study was performed with only healthy individuals and therefore the results might not be directly translatable to injured people the aerobic warm-up was only five minutes long and typically you're warming up for 10 15 20 minutes 
There was no dynamic stretching or skills-based dynamic movements in the warm-up. There was no comparison of combining the different interventions such as stretching with vibration rolling. The vibration roller was set to only one frequency while other frequencies remain to be investigated and testing other muscle groups, particularly those responsible for hip movements, might have produced more meaningful results. And using the flexibility research review matrix, this research article is given a quality score of 54%. If you want to try implementing the findings of this piece of research in your training, I'd suggest first doing only dynamic stretching and movements in your warm-up to set a base to set a baseline for how you feel during the main part of your workout. Once that's been established, try it with static stretching, then try it with regular foam rolling, then try it with vibration rolling, and then try mixing up, mixing up combinations. So do vibration foam rolling, then static stretching, um, then dynamic stretching, and then dynamic movements, mimicking the actions from your sport and compare how you feel. And there's a lot of ideas there to play with, so give it a go, have fun, and let me know how you get on. Hi and welcome to part three, the book review. I'm only re reviewing one book today, but it's actually a three volume collection of books called The Physiology of Joints, seventh edition by Adalbert Kapanji. Um, and Kapanji is world famous in the realm of orthopedics and physiotherapy and the quality of his books show why. They really are excellent contributions to the medical literature. And the books divide the parts of the body among the volumes. So volume one is the joints of the upper limb. Volume two is the joints of the lower limb. And volume three is the joints of the spinal column, pelvic girdle and head. And the books offer an incredible amount of detail without waffling on excessively. The illustrations are simple and very clear. And they cover everything you need to know about the structure and function of human joints. And Kapanji illuminates some of the lesser known laws of biology, such as the law of parsimony and the law of universal profusion. Um, also in the back of, of each book are diagrams that you can photocopy onto card and then cut out to make your own working models of human joints. It's, it, it's great. Um, these books are essentially the books on functional human anatomy, and I cannot rate them highly enough. If you are a personal trainer, strength coach, physical therapist, massage therapist, any kind of role involved with the human body and the joints, I insist that you get these books. Again, they're called The Physiology of the Joints, and I suggest getting the latest ones, the seventh edition, and the author is Adalbert Kapanji. He's just listed as A.I. Kapanji. Kapanji is spelt K-A-P-A-N-D-J-I. And again, I'll write the the description of the books or the name of the of the books and the author in the description box on YouTube and also in the caption on Instagram. Hello and welcome to part four, where I tell you all about people I think you need to be paying attention to. First up is Charlotte Tooth. Her Instagram handle is 
at Charlotte underscore tooth. That's C-H-A-R-L-O-T-T-E underscore T-O-O-T-H. Charlotte is a former dancer turned personal trainer who specializes in Pilates bar. That's the bar from ballet, B-A-R-R-E and TRX, which is the famous suspension training equipment. Um, Charlotte is undoubtedly one of the UK's top female trainers and her body awareness and control is bloody amazing. Um, I've taken part in her online coaching and her delivery style is truly excellent. Uh, She offers a range of online classes, so go check her out. Her website is www.charlottetooth.co.uk. Next up is Monty Simmons, another fantastic UK-based health and fitness trainer. Monty's Instagram handle is movewithmonty, all one word, that's M-O-V-E-W-I-T-H-M-O-N-T-Y. You can also check out his website, www.movewithmonty.uk. There's no co in that, it's just .uk. Uh, Monty has been moving and physically active his whole life. He has an extensive background in martial arts and boxing. The guy's got multiple black belts and he's currently a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which means he's tough as nails. And his movement experience is really evident in his physical capacities. When you watch videos on his account, he can do some really impressive stuff. He's got pretty much every advanced personal training qualification under the sun, as well as being a qualified life coach. So he truly delivers a three-dimensional approach to training. He's also a really cool guy, so go check him out. And last but certainly not least is Ollie Frost. His Instagram handle is PT, all one word. That's O-L-L-I-E-F-R-O-S-T-P-T. Ollie is also from the UK. Uh, yeah, I'm repping the UK uh, fitness professionals in this in this episode. Big up UK. Um, Ollie is a former professional rugby player turned personal trainer and movement coach, and his approach is very holistic. He uh, teaches movement in a way that uh, he teaches it almost like a physical language, one which speaks to people from all backgrounds and all abilities. And he pays particular emphasis on proper functional breath work and the foundational patterns of movement. So his methods are just as good for your mental health as they are for your physical health. And Ollie has created a fantastic online movement lifestyle program called Move 45. You can learn more about it on Instagram by searching for at Move 45. So that's sorry, that's at M-O-V-E underscore four five, the numerals, or by going to the website www.move-45.co.uk. Um, just to give you full disclosure, none of the people I've mentioned in this or any other episode have asked me to include them in this segment. In fact, the first that they usually hear about it is when the episode goes out. Surprise, guys. Um, I will never accept paid profile payments in this segment, and I will only recommend people that I would trust with my own health. So go and check them out. In the last episode, I mentioned Sid Paulson, and Sid was gracious enough to spend time answering my questions once I finally figured out how to use Zoom. Uh, hey, I'm a flexibility coach, not an online technolo- technology coach, so cut me some slack. Only the audio is featured in this episode. If you want to watch the video version, um, it's up on Sid's profile. Go search for it on YouTube. His name is spelt S-I-D-P-A-U-L-S-O-N. 
I hope you find the interview enlightening. Enjoy. Cool. So, um, welcome. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So I guess we can start by, uh, if you tell the audience a bit about you and how you, how you started coaching and what you do. Yeah, sure. So my name is Sid. I am an online and private gymnastics coach. I first started coaching mainly through like social media mm-hmm. because I was like beginning to train myself and I wanted to record my progress and share it with other people. And then that kind of turned into me creating tutorials on YouTube, mm-hmm. Instagram, which then led to me kind of move on to more personal training as well, doing classes and yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. So awesome. it all started with, with Instagram. That was how I got, got into it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. And I noticed on your Instagram, um, you've created something called Gymnastics Movement. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so if you can tell the audience a bit bit more about that, how, how you developed it, what it involves. Yeah, sure. So Gymnastics Movement is my approach to training through mm-hmm. gymnastics training. Yeah. And it's basically like, a, like all the concepts and, and, and approaches that I have learned into what I find is the, the best approach mm-hmm. to develop strong, flexible and healthy bodies so yeah it's kind of the approach that i like to use to help other people get fit yeah feel well and just become like the best version of themselves yeah yeah and what i like about your account is the, i mean the videos that you're putting out it, it speaks for itself um yeah. you, see, you see some accounts they're putting out video well they're putting out programs and it's a case of the coach can do all the movements which is yeah. great but you don't see very many clients doing the same movements and i think that's what's yeah. great it's like the really good programs from the kind of the mediocre ones because yeah especially in flexibility um you find that there's very much a follow me do what i do kind of mentality um yeah so kind of like in yoga um mm. and contortion you know you, you get yeah. somebody who's naturally hypermobile unless you yeah. have a program and you know you get a 50 year old guy who can't even touch his knees and he's like well why isn't this working but what i, what I like about yours is that you show the results with your clients which is which is fantastic but um, I mean, who are some of the, the kind of important people or figures that um, have helped you in your coaching career? Well, I guess the most influential one was uh, uh, Christopher Summers from Gymnastic Bodies because he was the one that got me into like the whole gymnastics mm-hmm. uh, fitness scene. So I read his book, Building the Gymnastics Body, like great book. probably seven or eight years ago. Right. And when I saw like those gymnastic, gymnastics positions, I was like, this is something that I want to learn. Mm. And that was like the introduction to me getting started with gymnastics. Yeah. Yeah. And that led me down to where I am now. So that was a huge influence. And besides that, it's been a lot of people. It's not been like one specific person. It's been, I've been following a lot of people on YouTube and Instagram with and like just taking the, the best concepts from each. Yeah like each uh, coach and, and then I use it like in a way that I find helps me and my clients for what our goal is. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I don't like that mentality of just, this is the approach mm-hmm. because there is not one approach because everyone has specific goals and, and different goals. Yeah. So we need to find an approach that suits them and it's not always going to be the one that I have. So then I might take something from like another coach and I just try to pick and, yeah. find the stuff that works best 
I mean, I, yeah, I think that's a fantastic mentality. And if only more coaches had that, would be a, in a much better place with the industry. But <laughs> yeah, are there um, are there any coaches or instructors that you you you've kind of seen that you haven't trained with and you'd really like to learn from? Any kind of like seminars you want to go to or courses or just people mm. stuff that you thought you yeah. know I, I wouldn't mind learning from those. Uh, definitely Christopher Summers would be awesome he's like a like a legend I would say <laughs> and yeah I, I, he does the same thing with this is the approach mm-hmm. but I still feel like he has like some he can say that because it's the system that works so well yeah. for so many people mm-hmm. even though it's not optimal for everyone because it's like so basic so someone who would be more advanced wouldn't be as successful with the program because it's designed to work for everyone yeah. which makes it has to be like super basic so mm-hmm. it's good for some people and it's not as good for, for other people yeah but he yeah he i would definitely like to to learn more from in person oh cool um, yeah i mean yeah he's so i i'm obviously aware of who coach summers is and what he does with his programs but he's not actually somebody i've really kind of paid attention to so somebody i'm, I'm definitely yeah. into um so when we go to your instagram and we look at your videos it, it, it looks like you're obviously working a lot with gymnasts but um, yeah. Who are the types of people or athletes that you that you work with in a typical day? Well, right now I mostly work with adults because mm-hmm. that's been the area that I've chosen to focus on the most. Uh, before I've trained both kids, like uh, people in their twenties up to like seventy years old. So it's it's a wide variety of people, which is fun because it's like a new challenge with every every person because I can't use the same approach for a kid like I would for an adult. Yeah, of course. Which is, uh, yeah. So it gives me good experience to work with different people. Yeah. But right now I focus on developing strong and flexible adults and help them achieve specific gymnastics goals. Yeah, ah, that's cool. Are they, are they mostly kind of um, beginners or do you, do you deal with like the high level people as well? Or is it kind of like a mixed bag? It's kind of a mix, but at the moment it's been more beginners because I have like gone back into more of the basics myself, both in training and in studying, yeah. which kind of makes me post more basic stuff, which leads to more basic, uh, like clients find me. So sure. it's very dependent on what I like to focus on. Yeah. Because I, I find it difficult to focus on too many things at the same time. So if I want to do basics, that's going to be like all that I do. Yeah. Because it's hard to, yeah. I find yeah. it hard to study two things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's um, for any, obviously anybody who's watching this on the video or listening to it on the podcast, that if you're, if you're looking for someone to learn from and you are a, a rank beginner, you know, swallow your pride a little bit and, and look for people who are, who are offering like the, the basic starting points yeah. of progressions. Don't be kind of um, enthralled by people doing crazy things with the bodies and <laughs> taking years to get there, you know. Um, certainly, I think when you see... Yeah, the, I think... Uh, yeah, oh, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, I think one of the, the one of the most important things when you look for a coach, especially as an adult, is that they themselves started as an adult. Sure. Because that's a huge point. Because it, I've worked both like in the gymnastics, gymnastics industry, and more the gymnastics strength. Yeah. But in the gymnastics industry, it's yeah, it's it's not as good because coaches who was gymnasts themselves as kids, mm-hmm. they don't have the, the understanding of how it is to develop your body as an adult. Yeah, and there's a lot of like reconsiderations you need to take as an adult with joint integrity, mm-hmm. flexibility, yeah. which is comes quite naturally to to kids. So it's yeah. important if you choose a coach to choose someone who began as an adult. Yeah. I think is absolutely. Huge. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's 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 absolutely gold advice. 
yeah. yeah. You find people like um, Tom Kerr's as well. He says the exact same thing. You know, yeah. you can't use stretches that work for somebody who's at an age where they can manipulate the, the growth and shape of the joints for somebody who yeah. has the growth spurt, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. So when you're coaching somebody, what are some of the more um, common issues or problems that you, that you typically face or that you have to deal with? Mm, when it comes to coach, do you mean like physical or like... Uh, yeah, so physical, for example. So are, are there kind of like common um, flexibility restrictions or strength limitations that people have? Yeah, sure. It's pretty much the same for for most people. All, everyone has tight hamstrings, mm, yeah. tight hip, tight hip flexors, yeah. poor overhead flexibility, mm-hmm. and yeah, those are like the most common ones that I see everyone has, which makes training very difficult in the beginning. Yeah. Which is why I think a lot of people have problems with pain and injuries because they just aren't physically prepared to do a lot of sports and activities. Yeah. And I think something people forget is that you need to deserve to train sports and do like CrossFit or gymnastics. Mm-hmm. You can't just do that kind of training and expect to get fit. That is the thing that you do once you have prepared, prepared the body to do yeah. the activity. Yeah. Because if you don't have like the wrist flexibility and you start doing push-ups or handstands, your wrists are going to get, yeah, it's yeah, going to yeah. get to start hurting. So. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. It's kind of like if you look at general preparation versus sport-specific, I think... Yeah. Kind of most, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think most people kind of think of it as in a like a yearly cycle. They think, okay, so I'm in the off season. I'll do my general preparation work and then sport specific. But really, you kind yeah. of looking at that across your career. So if you want to get into a sport, make sure you yeah. can handle the demands of that sport. And I think that I think yeah, exactly. that's great advice. Um, yeah. So if so, obviously you've been coaching for a while, but um, and and you've learned things along the way. But if the, if you could say travel back in time to the start of your coaching career, is there any? advice or one specific tip that you would give to your younger self hmm that's kind of a difficult one (laughs) Uh, let me think for a second what would you say by the way if you could travel back to yourself um i like the way you threw that back onto me (laughs) yeah i I just need to (laughs) Um, yeah yeah mine would be um to um in to promote uh, the message of trial and error more because yeah. one of the things that people tend to ask for is how many repetitions should I do? How many sets should I do? How long should I do yeah. this stretch or this exercise? They want specific details. And it's like, look, it, you know, individual biology dictates, you're going to have a completely different, yeah. you will have a completely different response to me because of our biological makeup, our, our training history, our, our psychological preferences. So mine yeah. would be to probably almost do away with, um, recommendations for sets and reps and kind of just give people a starting point okay so start here with with two sets of so say we're talking yeah. static stretching two sets of 30 seconds um see how your body responds if you're not getting any, any results throw in another set um yeah you know, hold it for longer and just play with the training variables i think people are, are, i don't know maybe too afraid or i don't know but they don't want to play with the training variables which is what you know coaches mm-hmm. do um I think a lot of the time coaches, we're guessing a lot of the time as well. You know, yeah. uh, you'll have a client who is doing, say they're doing a front split and they're trying isometric stretches. They're not working. Um, and they're like, okay, what should I do next? And you think, well, tense a bit harder, a bit longer. Just play with yeah. it. So yeah, I think it would be, mine to myself would be encourage people yeah. to, to play with the training variables more. Yeah, that's a good one. I've, I've noticed that myself. People like, a lot of people like to just be told exactly what to do. 
Yeah. And as soon as they have to choose any variables themselves, they just like freak out because it's, they have to take accountability themselves. So yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, cool. And, um, and I think so for, for myself, I think the, the one thing that I would tell myself is to be more patient with mm -hmm. my training. Yeah. Because as like just a few years ago, I was a bit too, I was rushing my training basically. Yeah. And since I began gymnastics as an adult, I had to train very differently. Mm -hmm. But when I, I moved to, to Stockholm from a small town in Sweden and, and I began training with like some of the, the national team mm -hmm. because I had like the, yeah, I was, I was lucky to, to do that. But then I started training just like they did, but I hadn't gone through all the physical preparation that they did as kids. So my body was totally different and it did not respond as well, mm -hmm. which made me overtrain and overuse some of the joints like my elbows, wrists, shoulders, which yeah. led me to more pain and it was yeah so i think patience is key especially as an adult in like in all sports if you rush your training you're just gonna yeah 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 absolutely there are no shortcuts so yeah but i mean that, that's that's probably the gold golden advice for for adults is look slow down you know stop looking for the there's this kind of um obsession with lifestyle hacks yeah. and biology hacks yeah <laughs> it's ridiculous you, yeah. you're not a machine you know you you can't hack your biology you, you know your biology will only let you do do so much before it says that's too much. Mm. Is an injury to slow you down. You know? Yeah, I think. But know, I guess that's. I guess that's kind of like the the society that we live in. We get everything instantly. Yeah. Take <laughs> food, drinks. We get everything right right now. So I guess it's the same thing with our bodies. We just want the results right now. But yeah, yeah. The, that's a that's a good thing to learn from from sports that you don't get everything right away. You need to have patience and you need to put in hard work before you get it. So. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's great advice. Um, you mentioned before about, um, we're talking about like the, the main limitations and you mentioned if people don't have say, um, certain wrist flexibility, they, they struggle yeah. with push-ups. Um, so in your opinion, um, if somebody is wanting to get into gymnastic style training, what, say they can only train at home, what would you say are the three most important exercises that they should be focusing on to kind of lay that foundation? Uh, I think push-ups is one of the most fundamental exercises. Yeah, not just because it's it's one of the best pushing exercises you can do, and you can make do like an infinite amount of variations to make it more difficult. Yeah, but it will also help you learn to control your body in a way that is going to teach you technique for a lot of other exercises. Yeah, so you will learn to have complete body tension. You will learn how to control your scapula. You will yeah. develop your wrist extension. Mm -hmm. You will learn to control your pelvis and the core position. So I think that is a great exercise to to Brilliant. learn a lot of the key and techniques that you need for like every exercise that you do especially in gymnastics yeah so that is number one yeah uh, number two would probably be chin-ups as mm -hmm. well super basic but i think a lot of people don't do them in a way that is beneficial for them yeah i think i think a lot of people do pull-ups with the, the pronated grip and they like bring the chin forward and just using their arms yeah instead of properly activating the scapula and the like the rear delts yeah which is I think most people want to train their back, but they end up mostly training their arms. Sure. Going to that rounded forward posture that we try to avoid, which the chin-up is good to do if, yeah, if you want to get rid of that. Cool. So that would be number two. And number three, I think, would be either Jefferson curls mm -hmm. or maybe hanging leg lifts for core strength. Yeah. I'm not quite sure because it depends on the person and like, yeah. their specific yeah. limitations. But the Jefferson curl is also great to build up more resilience in the spine and develop hamstring flexibility. So yeah, yeah, I think that's a good that's yeah. a good basic to, to start from. 
yeah and it's, it's great to see the jefferson curl coming back coming back into fashion it, it was quite popular you know many many moons ago and then we have mm -hmm. this whole neutral spine kind of obsession <laughs> thanks to you yeah. know certain authors and certain books you know you have to be neutral spine when you're when you're lifting when you're, you're eating when you're going for a crap you know so <laughs> you know which is ridiculous yeah. um so yeah, yeah I mean, is definitely one of my top ones as well so yeah no, that's really good advice um and, and the push-up as well is is so uh is so underrated like it so obviously your background is gymnastics mine is martial arts and yeah. you know people come to me and say oh i was you know punching the pads or the heavy bag or the um you know trying to break breeze blocks and i've got you know elbow pain i'm like oh, well how many push-ups yeah. can you do well, i haven't done push-ups in 20 years so maybe maybe <laughs> some push-ups and condition the joints to actually be able to tolerate that force but no, i think those are great yeah. questions yeah i think like the exercises themselves are not that important always i think it's more about the execution mm -hmm. because there are like no bad exercises i think it's a just about how how you how you do the exercises yeah completely so i think yeah i mean a lot of people do push-ups but don't get any of the benefit from the exercise yeah and almost get hurt from it so yeah yeah I mean, yeah. yeah no that's cool um so a bit of a funny question now um, if you pretend that you're stranded on a desert island and you can only <laughs> take one book one piece of gym equipment and one type of food or drink what would they be Oof, that's a tough question <laughs> for my book, I think, hmm, I'm thinking that I want to bring something practical so that I could like make boats and stuff on the island, but I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do that because I'm not a very practical guy. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I, um, I would bring the art of happiness with the, the Dalai Lama, because I think that would be a good idea to like learn to be happy, <laughs> even though I was <laughs> stranded yeah. on an island. Yeah. So that would yeah. be the book I would bring. Being happy through suffering, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think that's key, especially in the, the world we live in, where a lot of people are un unhappy, even though we have more stuff than ever. So sure. I think a lot of a lot of stuff goes up, up here. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for gym equipment, I think about bringing uh, gymnastics rings. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's a great equipment where you can do a lot of exercises, push-ups, pull-ups. You can hang them in a coconut tree and do yeah. German <laughs> hangs, and I think that would be a fun equipment to choose oh, cool, and food i think i would take uh, watermelon yeah all right I'll yeah like yeah no, cool, yeah cool. It's, a, it, it's a good food and you get some uh, some fluid as well from yeah i think uh -huh. that cool. yeah <laughs> i'm gonna go with that oh, i like those yeah that's good um so um obviously you're getting uh, very established in, in like the kind of international coaching community but where would you like to be five years from now in, in terms of your coaching career Mm, I think like like the ultimate goal is that I would like to open up a gym, a, a gymnastics strength gym, mm -hmm. which yeah. is something that I'm working on with. A, I just started a new company with a couple of friends. Yeah. And we are going to, because previously I've been focused on going internationally like yeah. to reach people all over the world. But we are going to start a business here in Sweden with more focus on being like locally and try to establish a good business in Sweden. So that is something I would like to do, to open up a gym with focus on gymnastics, strength training, and my approach to training, because that is something that we do not have yet. Yeah. Most of the gymnastics places are usually working together with CrossFit in like a box. Yeah. So gymnastics is never like the main focus, mm -hmm. which, yeah, it, it's not as fun to work when you know that what you do is not the main priority. Everyone just wants to, yeah, get the fast results, but we want to go. Yeah, yeah. for the long run 
Yeah, I like that. Um, and for myself, uh, my goal is to be like the leading resource for gymnastics strength training online. Yeah. So that if, if somebody wants to learn something about gymnastics, then they go to gymnasticsmovement.com or whatever my website will be. Yeah. But that would be my ambition to, yeah, to be a, a leading resource and someone people can trust when they want to, to learn more about, about gymnastics. Very cool. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I'm really looking forward to what you're doing uh, or what you're going to be doing in, in the years to come because, like I say, I mean, right now you're, you know, in my opinion, one of the top you know, gymnastic coaches, um, you know, people will say to me, you know, they'll send me a message, you know, what do you think of Ido Portal? And I'm like, well, he's all right, but, you know, <laughs> go check out Sid instead if you want, you know, useful information that it's not going to, you know, you yeah. know, remortgage your house for, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's difficult with those, like the, all those culture and like, it's, it's hard to recommend when they have like that cult feeling. It's just, exactly. I don't know, when you don't like the person who does it, it's hard to recommend them, even if the approach it's useful. Yeah. So I think it's yeah, being humble and just being able to, to learn from others and tell others that you do that is something that builds yeah. confidence, I think, and so people can trust you. Yeah. Because you, you, you can tell when someone just want to have their approach, but you can tell that they've been influenced by other people mm-hmm. and they just don't have the confidence to, to tell that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's nobody kind of owns the, the exercise. <laughs> information i mean yeah. in the the next podcast one of the questions somebody said uh, sent to me is you know i i've been doing this at the, I, I teach this kind of class and somebody who's just moved into the gym has said that their system owns those exercises and then the names to them so <laughs> stop teachers like no because yeah. you, you can't copyright a system or waking a name no. you can't copyright human movement you know it belongs yeah. to all of us and you know we need to be doing away with this you know all you know this kind of protect my kind of territory you know this very tribal mentality where people you know they, they try to keep hold of what they think is theirs at the end of the day the, the, the more we can lift each other up and this is one of the reasons why you know i've asked you to do this interview and, and get you on the podcast is because yeah. we're going to go much further and, and ultimately help the public the more we we help each other you know and lift each other yeah. up. So, um but be, i mean so those are my questions and you give them some great answers so thank you for that but be, before we finish um, can you tell the audience where they can find you um, on the internet, on, on social media or, or email, just so they can get in contact with you? Yeah, sure. You can just search for Sid Paulson. Uh, that's my name. And you can find me on most places with that name because it's quite a unique name. So yeah. it's, uh, it's easy to find me. On Instagram, it's Sid Paulson 1 yeah. because Sid Paulson was uh, somebody took it. <laughs> and I, I tried to get it back, but they were not. Yeah, they didn't want to give it to me. So, <laughs> But I tried. And you can also find me on YouTube at Sid Paulson as well, where I post more longer tutorials on gymnastics, strength, and all that stuff. Yep. And gymnasticsmovement.com if you want to uh, join online coaching, get some uh, online courses, or wants to, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. More of the paid contents. Yeah, very good. Well, I, I, like you say, that, um, that's the end of you know, my questions. But um, you know, thank you for your time. The questions you've given have been brilliant. Uh, and again, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm just really looking forward to, to what you're going to be doing and I'll keep recommending people to go and see the stuff that you're doing. So, um, yeah, all the best. And hopefully we can chat again soon, mate. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for the interview. All right, buddy. Take it easy. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Hi, and welcome to part five of the Q&A segment. The first question is from Rachel and she asks, 
I've been following your methods for a while and I know that we can develop flexibility simultaneously with strength. But what do I say to people who insist that flexibility and strength are separate qualities? Thanks for your question, Rachel. And I think that's a really good point. Um, To a degree, flexibility and strength are separate qualities. They're different motor abilities that contribute to a person's overall movement quality. But like I've been saying all along, nothing in the body happens in isolation. And in episode one, I explained how the different motor abilities can interact with each other. When you're trying to, when you are training to develop two motor abilities at the same time, we use a combination of their names to explain what it is that we're measuring. So if you're training strength at the limit of your range of motion, you're developing flexibility strength, written as flexibility hyphen strength, or strength flexibility, whichever way you prefer to say it, it doesn't really matter as long as you recognize both of the biomotor abilities that you're trying to improve. And anyone who says that flexibility and strength or flexibility and any of the other motor abilities are completely separate qualities, uh, they're displaying a failure of reasoning by creating a false dichotomy, one which is based on a poor understanding of human physiology and sports training. Now, while all of the motor abilities interact with each other, um, it can be argued that flexibility and strength share an even more intimate relationship with, with each other than they do with the other motor abilities. You need flexibility to be able to get into positions to generate force where you need it. In other words, you need flexibility to be able to express your strength, but you also use strength more than any other motor ability to develop flexibility. I would argue that if you had to choose just two motor abilities, you could forget about speed, endurance, agility, and coordination, and you could work on just your flexibility and strength, and you'd still have incredible movement capacities. Whereas if you ignored flexibility and strength and worked on any combination of the other motor abilities, you're very likely going to end up rigid and weak, and no one wants to be like that. So if anything, flexibility and strength are not only very closely linked, but their symbiotic relationship is possibly the most important one in the human movement equation. The next question is from Diego, and he asks, I've been doing my stretching for 30 seconds, and I'm seeing regular improvements, but my personal trainer keeps telling me that I'm wasting my time because stretching for 30 seconds doesn't work. Help. (sighs) Thanks, Diego. Look, I think your personal trainer is probably well-intentioned, but very misinformed. I could send you thousands of scientific articles showing you that stretching for 30 seconds improves flexibility, but you don't need research for that. You are all the proof that you need. You're getting results from your stretching, so clearly it's working. My advice is keep doing your stretches, and hopefully your personal trainer will come round to the idea when he or she sees the evidence for themselves. This next question is from Rose, and she says, My physical therapist told me that pulling my toes back in the middle split will irritate my sciatic nerve. Is this true, and what can I do about it? Thank you, Rose. Um, I've had a number of questions like this recently. Look, your nerves are not like a taut rubber band about to snap. They have a certain amount of slack in them, and when you extend your limbs, that slack gets taken up. It prevents the nerve from being overstretched and potentially strained. 
to put your sciatic nerve into a full stretch or to put it on full tension, you need to get into something called the slump position. And you can see it on Google Images if you want to know what it looks like. But a middle split or a side split isn't going to do that on its own. Now, if you have a history of sciatic nerve compression and irritation, certain movements which utilize the glute muscles might cause some issues. But it's certainly not something I've encountered in my time coaching. Okay, that's it for today's episode. I limited the number of questions I answered in this episode because I wanted to see what effect it has on the length of the episode. I might keep it to three questions in the future. Uh, I might increase it. I don't know yet. But if you want your flex, if you want your question answering, send it to me via DM on Instagram or send me an email to info at flexibilityresearch.com. The podcast is available in most places you can listen to podcasts. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and some others I've not even, I can't even remember. Um, it'll also be available on YouTube. Go search for my channel. It's just my name, Dan Van Zant. That's D-A-N-V-A-N-Z-A-N-D-T. Please leave a like and any comments you have on the episode. And if you're not already subscribed, please do so. If you like this episode, please support the show by liking and leaving a review if your favorite podcast app allows it. Until next time, stay safe and stay flexible.